Hey guys, before we start, I do want to give you a little disclaimer that if you're listening with kids, there is one or two mentions of hard language. Alright, enjoy the episode. Then fast forward a few months, after that initial prototype was built, Tesla basically knocks on the door and says, yeah, we want to use your program as well. And we suddenly have to like distribute like a tenfold, you know, hundredfold increase of what I thought initially was even scalable at that time. Well, you know, it's like the building a scalable product is always, it's kind of like bullshit, to be honest. Like, that's what everybody asks you. Like, build a scalable product. It's like, you have no idea what a scalable product looks like. Unless you really have, like, scale and you have, like, an influx of users, you have no idea how this whole thing will scale. Welcome from Santa Clara, California. It's Where to Start Up, a show where my guests and I talk about how you can start build and scale a successful business. We also uncover some of the hidden stories of successful startups from the San Francisco Bay Area as told by entrepreneurs, investors, innovators, and more. My name is Earl Schaefer and on the podcast with me today is Alex Wilhelm, co-founder of Validated, a mobility rewards platform. The company was acquired by Movil Group, where Alex ended up being the principal engineer up until June 2020. In this episode, we will talk about how Alex turned an old energy facility into a Bitcoin mining farm, what he learned being on the popular TV show Shark Tank, and what his philosophy on building a minimum viable product is. All right, I want to start with something a bit unusual, and that's the story of how you actually came to the U.S. And believe it or not, but that story started with a Bitcoin mining farm in Austria. Is that correct? Correct. <laughs> My family have been in possession of a hydroelectric power plant like for the past like almost 100 years. It was part of a old cotton factory that was there like during the Austrian-Hungarian Empire and then was like retrofitted over the years. And yeah, ended up as kind of like a hydro plant and just saw like, hey, there is an opportunity here to potentially start mining, especially when 2013, like the price started taking off and uh, GPU mining was still a thing. I completely remotely converted that power plant into a mining station, uh, which ultimately was picked up by Bloomberg Business Week, like a little bit differently than I wanted it to be initially because the idea was also to have a hedge against uh, the ANV, I think. AVN. AVN, exactly. Sorry, it's been a while. <laughs> and basically, as a hedge to say, like, well, if I don't want to sell my electricity at the price that they offer, well, let me just convert it and store it as a fungible asset and then sell it at my own leisure. And yeah, as I mentioned, that was picked up by like Bloomberg Business Week, which then also ultimately led me to the U.S. and allowed me to apply for a green card here. For those of you who don't know what the EFON is, it is the state energy facility. And the energy market in Europe is very regulated. There's a certain price that they will pay you for the energy that you're putting into the grid. And so you really thought out of the box and wanted to do something differently. You wanted to get more bang for your buck. The intriguing part of it, though, you left out, which is... The fact that you weren't even in the country when you set all of this up. So who set all of this up for you and where were you? There was a friend of mine. So I, I essentially just like bought all the parts and the initial setup uh, there in, in Japan, assembled a prototype, uh, basically recorded everything, imaged the computers, and then 
rebought the whole hardware in Austria. And I just told my friend, yeah, I told my friend just like, hey, you pick everything up. This is how you assemble it. This is what I want you to buy at Bauhaus just to create the frames and everything. And this is, and then I remotely managed, uh, imaged essentially the uh, the machines and set them up, uh, everything through TeamViewer. Wait, so you built a mining farm in Japan and then you had another one in Austria? Well, I had, I had like the prototype miner in Japan that I, that I eventually also actually shipped to, to Austria. There was a prototype miner to test everything. And then there was the, the full full-fledged like setup in in Austria it really does sound like it was a full-fledged setup I mean you did convert a whole energy facility so my question is what was your background at the time what was your education I originally went to the Knödel Academy in in Biedermannsdorf and just like really 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 didn't like that and all my teachers said like yeah this is not a good this is not a good fit for you so I switched uh, I think in the third or fourth year uh, to the evening school and the TGM and once I was done with that for like yeah, electronics, essentially, just like took off and just moved to Japan and ended up living there for 10 years, co-founding essentially a consulting agency in the finance sector. And that actually also what, you know, brought me in this intersection of like fintech with Bitcoin cryptocurrency because I was just like involved in that field at the time. Okay, so you did go to a technical high school, which is basically what the TGM is, and get your degree in electronics there. And then you moved to Japan, where you spent about 10 years and co-found a company in the fintech industry with a few co-founders before you go to the US. What sparked that? So what happened is like once I was done, I, I already made the decision to basically leave Japan to go to the US and, you know, had my green card application process there. And the idea was then just to start a company again. And I've got to know my former co-founders basically uh, through common acquaintance. And that's when I didn't just like, we started the initial prototype and then I moved to like Portland and Seattle by extension. And we got into uh, an incubator program called Techstars, which I think is like the second, you know, most well-known incubator besides Y Combinator. And while going through that process, we had press coming out of a startup that was building at the time called Validated. And uh, Shark Tank actually reached out to us because we were looking for something that's interesting, that's new, because, you know, a lot of products end up there are very like QVC, kind of like little blanket here, little cookie thing over there. They wanted to bring a little bit more of like an app, you know, technology kind of like startup into the fold. And so we essentially just like followed the application process through them. But we also heard that, you know, essentially the application rate and acceptance rate overall with Shark Tank, like you just applying yourself to trying to get in, uh, is actually less than, than Harvard that you get admitted. And even if you record it's not guaranteed that you're getting aired because they over-record basically what they have time slots for. And also at the time that it's recorded, since it's for a season, same as a television uh, season, you don't know when you will be broadcasted. It could be a month or two months after recording, or it could be a year after recording. Right, right. That, that makes sense. But I want to go back to the part where you said the admission rate is actually lower than Harvard because that is very impressive. And then even when you get admitted, your show might not be aired. So the percentage of shows of companies that are being aired is even lower than that. So did your episode end up being broadcasted on national television? We got broadcasted about nine months later, which came with its own challenges there. <laughs> 
And so about those challenges, at what stage were you at during the time of recording? The snapshot that you see that was broadcasted was essentially like immediately after or like almost immediately after demo day uh, of Techstars. So it was a very early version where we just also pivoted from a really parking loyalty solution to like a multimodal parking solution. It was a very, so we basically defended an early prototype. And then once it aired, we basically had to have everything ready on the web page to also just address those pain points that were brought up during the show. It's like, well, this, is, this has been like a year ago. Like everything is fixed. Everything is working way better. You know, we have way more integrations now and so on. And so when you say everything was fixed, how different actually was your software, your product at the time when the show was aired? Completely 100% different. (laughs) And that fits perfectly to what we want to talk about, which is when good is good enough in product development. So for the listener to better understand what you actually built, what you actually presented, can you give me in a nutshell what the product was about? So what we've built was a a marketplace for merchants that wanted to basically pay as a thank you, as a loyalty, give you money to say thank you for coming in. And you can use that money in return to push that into rideshare, like Lyft and Uber, or, you know, you can push it into like micromobility. So we were just very early in that process. And we also only had Lyft at that time as well in uh, in the app. So, yeah. (laughs) So knowing that that was pretty much the first iteration of the product, what was the reasoning behind your decision to go on the show? At the end of the day, it's also free advertisement. You go on there because, you know, they get their ratings and you get hopefully exposure. And sorry to interrupt, but the show still airs sometimes, right? Even to this day, because obviously it's syndication, like once a month or so, I get a notification from our hosting provider of the corporate webpage. And the webpage is basically going down because there is some rescreening of, of that episode in some country or somewhere. So everybody just still comes in and, uh, and comments basically on what is now, you know, four years ago. All right, let me summarize here for a second. So you go to a technical high school in Austria where you get a degree. Then you move to Japan where you build a consulting company in fintech. In the meanwhile, you also have a friend build a Bitcoin mining farm in Austria. So please don't tell me you learned all of that at the TGM because that will make me seriously question what I did in high school. It was It's basically self-taught. So even coming out of TGM in, in Vienna... Didn't really program very much. I actually learned programming on the fly, basically, while living in Japan, just out of necessity. And then just the product aspect. Uh, and I don't, you know, I don't say like I'm perfect product guy. It's more about like finding like this balance if you're a consultant uh, to like what can you like, you know, what feature should you build? Where do you see it going? And can you interpret the vision of the client or the, your own vision in a manageable fashion? And that just came with experience. And some of the experience that you have is also in the hardware sector, because I think you told me before that you also have a knack for gaming consoles. Is that right? I'm tinkering around with some old retro consoles uh, since there has been a resurgence in the need of being able to have maybe new replacement consoles that are not emulation, but uh, can play, you know, the same games. But now you can just you can reuse your old cartridges, uh, your old CDs, but just plug them in into your HDTV without any major hassle. And so now I'm a little curious for myself because I have a Nintendo 64 at home from my childhood days. 
what happens with the image? Because back then we didn't have 4K or even HD TVs. It's actually improved as well and cleaned up by an algorithm that's basically built into a add-on board. Well, as a little note to myself, it sounds like I need to get my Nintendo 64 back. All right, but I'm getting carried away here. Let's go back to startups. Let's go back to building a product and building a business. At Validated, when you were at Shark Tank, you guys shipped very early. But a lot of especially European companies then have a fear of shipping too early, which ends up making them ship too late. Why do you think that is? Well, it's a good question. Uh, I don't think it's even a fear with Europeans. I think it's a fear with everybody because there's two different mindsets at play here. One is the engineering mindset that you want to create something perfect. Sometimes it's just like you basically look at your product as an engineer. And the only thing you see is all the code that kind of works or where you think there is a hole here. So you basically, as an engineer, you tend to like hone in on everything that's not good, even though there's a lot of stuff that's normally good. I mean, if you're a good engineer. <laughs> right. But on the other side as well with product, like if you have designs, for example, you have the designer that has a vision for, for the system. And, you know, sometimes that vision is a little bigger than what you should do initially. But then there's also like, as a, as a, you know, basic and artist looking at those comps, looking at those wireframes, and then it's not hundred percent perfect. You also just, you tend to hone in on those imperfections that you see. Maybe it doesn't scale a hundred percent on the Samsung Galaxy S whatever, but you know, it works on 95% of every other thing. It's just weird how a product development process seems to really play into the insecurities of both parties. <laughs> And so what are some of these insecurities that you've experienced or that you've seen over and over engineers experiencing while building a product? You're afraid that you get that, oh my God, like now my reputation is destroyed because, you know, it's like I only have one chance to launch this product and there will be a hundred thousand people coming in immediately where in the end, you know, like anybody that, that built products before will tell you, you over, you always overestimate how, how many people will actually join. And you always overestimate how many people will actually leave or really hate you for the rest of your life. But you also always underestimate to really build everything, how much, how long will it take time to market? And that's, and that's the big fallacy when, when releasing products is reduce time to market as much as possible. Don't worry too much about the repercussions because most likely you will learn more shipping early than you will shipping late. Right. Because the learnings really outweigh the drawbacks of shipping a product that isn't completely finished. So it's really about building the right MVP then. Yeah, it comes down to what is the product, like what is necessary really to do to get it out the door. And that's the age-old questions, like what is, an, what is an MVP? You know, there's probably TED Talks even like how like to do in a successful MVP where, you know, the problem is somehow an MVP always ends up more on the minimal side than the viable side. And it just comes down to I think really like how you manage the process. Which is a huge part of product management is managing that whole process. So looking back now at your career, at your time, for example, at Validated, is there a certain part of you that says, man, I could have done this completely differently and saved so much time and headache? It's like we went on, on this kind of like harsh sprint to trying to like implement everything we thought we needed to really capture... The, so basically backlogging the program, like creating a merchant portal that the merchant can self onboard, that they can put in their credit card, that they can like all these like complete product where we just assumed this is what we need to launch, where, you know, this took like two and a half weeks to just 
like gruelingly hours to implement where probably the best way we could have done is just say like if you're a merchant click here is a mailchimp site or a landing portal put in your information we'll contact you <laughs> and the problem is you know, and science are just like, oh, yeah, that was that was that was not great. But the problem is, decisions like this also haunt you to implement a system like that because now you have a code base that you know is integrated into your system, at least from an engineering point of view, that you kind of like have to push into the future. It becomes like an additional liability that you will drag into the future, where that will potentially delay and make future features more difficult to release. And I think that's actually something that is a lot of times overlooked that all of a sudden you've built this legacy system that you have to carry on to later versions of your product because you spent so much time and effort building it thinking this was going to be what's going to make your product scalable but what you're saying is that that actually might end up being the one thing that's going to make it really difficult for your product or your solution to scale well you know it's like the building a scalable product is always it's kind of like bullshit, to be honest. Like, that's what everybody asks you. Like, build a scalable product. It's like, you have no idea what a scalable product looks like. Unless you really have, like, scale and you have, like, an influx of users, you have no idea how this whole thing will scale. The problem is the more you build up front that wasn't really asked for or that you assumed is necessary, where you don't really have market validation, it just puts you in a box and constrains you in getting out of that box because you kind of feel you have to keep on going down that route Versus actually taking a step back and say, you know what, everything that we want to implement right now are just assumptions not grounded in reality. And, you know, let's try maybe something over there and just discard this, uh, makes it easier. And then maybe that will become your scalable uh, solution. Well, and especially at the beginning of a company, anything that you haven't tested your hypothesis on is what it is. It's an assumption. And so if the assumption doesn't work, literally the definition of businesses, then you change the assumption. So when you put it all together, what you're saying is scalability actually comes second to viability. Yeah. And the, the tendencies are there that an engineer is trying to over-engineer because, you, you know, it's like you're trying to like mitigate all possible mistakes and errors, but sometimes this over-engineering delays the process too fast to go to market. You're suddenly looking at a six months turnaround time versus like a two or three months turnaround time. That's why the scalability is a it's a very dangerous route to go down because the thing that takes the most time is always optimization. That's where, that's why you have, you know, not a hundred people at Google. That's why you have hundred thousand engineers there because you optimize everything down to a little bit because everything has to be accounted for with a new startup. Like, no, it's like speed. That's, that's what you have to do. And scalability comes second. And sometimes just shipping your product means that you can't obsess over features that it doesn't have and end up building features that nobody ever uses or that weren't used in the first place. But as the saying goes, hindsight is twenty twenty. So now looking back, is there something in your past that you've actually learned from and that you were able to apply on a future product? There, there are a couple of things where uh, we built like a solution for Lyft specifically in the Bay, kind of like as a technology provider to be able to distribute Lyft credits. And we needed that for ourselves anyway, but we also saw an opening in the market to be able to say like, yep, here you can, for example, like offer a insurance company an option to send out credits. And what happened there was that we 
Like initially there was no API to issue credit. So we found kind of like a workaround to ingest literally promo codes, like a hundred thousand promo codes <laughs> into the system. And I thought this is going to work initially for maybe a thousand users. So it's enough to basically prove out the issue. And if it becomes, you know, like successful enough, um, then potentially Lyft will build an API that we can integrate in and everything is going to be great. Then fast forward a few months after that initial prototype was built, Tesla basically knocks on the door and says, yeah, we want to use your program as well. And we suddenly have to like distribute like a tenfold, you know, hundredfold increase of what I thought initially was even scalable at that time. But surprisingly to me, like that worked. And we got that out the door and then eventually uh, got into like the API route. And that's still a program that's being used today by, by multiple partners at this point. But it just kind of showed that if we would have waited to say like, well, we can't launch this because scalability, it would have never gotten off the ground because nothing would have happened. Yeah, because Tesla would have never known that you actually already built that piece of software that they needed. So what did they want to do with, with your software? Um, they wanted to be able to issue credits um, to their customers for cars that are being serviced. So instead of getting a rental car, here you go, get 500 bucks. Right. And the software that they ended up using was actually built on what you had already built before, which was basically an Excel sheet is being pulled into a database. You put a nice user interface around it. And I mean, obviously a lot more goes into it, but essentially that's what it was, right? Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> yeah, essentially that's what it is. You have a database where you import CSV files and you shoot out codes the other end. And that was enough, you know, that was even enough of uh, a feature that was used by insurance companies and, and bigger clients alike. It just showed starting out with a small MVP to prove something out and not, you know, put in and that whole process, like this whole product initially, the first MVP was built within like a month and a half, something like that. Um, prove it out, test it with customers, then we obviously like iterate a little bit on it, like change the UI around, but just make it as simple as possible. And my word of advice to anybody that's doing any kind of B2B solution is always three things a client needs, uh, which is a, a custom ID field as a unique key for reconciliation in accounting. It's a comment field, free float. They just want, somebody just wants to put always a comment in there. And then just some basic form of reporting. Those are the main three things that everybody needs. And so obviously, you know that from experience and a lot of other things that you learned are actually from trial and error. But how else would you know how to approach these problems, these challenges? It's also a way how you were trained. Like if you were an engineer, for example, that's trained uh, on like a more classical level, like in Europe or Japan or you know, even in the United States, you follow a specific pattern, like you're trying to like follow what you've learned prior to apply it in the future. What's different than here in the Valley, for example, is that engineers here think differently. They're more in a consulting slash like startup mindset where they're being trained to really evaluate an MVP properly within the context of moving fast. And I think that's what salespeople normally want to be able to move fast. And there is this just like mindset that you either have to learn by yourself. And for me, I think that came through consulting or you, for example, being in the Bay or one of the companies, the high growth companies that teach you how to do this. It's a really a skill that you have to learn on top of programming. So it's really just as much about communication as it is about engineering. So let's fast forward a little bit to you have a product, it's working, you're bringing in customers and you're actually now building a sales force around this product. What can end up happening is 
there's friction between sales and engineering, debating about which features the customer wants, which features the customer actually needs, and what actually should be worked on. How do you approach situations like that? I think the the first thing is like, if basically somebody comes up and says like, we need this, otherwise we, we cannot enter this market. It's like, are those just like personal assumptions or is this like somewhat grounded in reality? And I understand that's a catch 22 because, you know, you can't build a product without the data to support it and vice versa. But the first thing is just like, where, where is this strong belief coming from to weigh that? And then once you actually start building, um, and I think that's a, especially as a fallacy as a senior engineer, you know, because now you can do so much more. You're used to doing so much more because it's easier for you being senior, like to catch yourself and stop yourself to say, uh, is this really necessary for what we're trying to achieve? Like, is this feature necessary? Do I maybe take too many edge cases into consideration and really be harsh about following the initial uh, guidelines and the initial product uh, feature set that you defined going forward. And that's really up to the sales team to actually build that trust with the customer as well as with the engineering team. So they have to report from both parties involved in building the best product. And so you don't fall into this endless discussion with, you know, between the sales team and engineering about should you actually build something or should you not? Does the customer actually need that? Yeah, engineers, we tend to push back immediately, which is like, oh, that salesperson again, like, oh, he's having some harebrained scheme ideas again. But, you know, some of them are good and just to really like trying to listen. Listening is one of those things that not a lot of people really do very well. Just like listen what this person is trying to say to you in the words that they normally do within their purview. And then really like take, take your own bias out of the picture and say like, well, if we would build this, for example, is this like a small change or a big change? And if it's a small change and then just follow up, just like, okay, what's the timeline like for the customer? Like, do they want it immediately? Do they want that like in a month from now? Or is that maybe even just a hypothetical question? Because sometimes you're just getting asked hypothetical questions as well. That's then being used in the sales process going forward. So I think just because like somebody comes in and says, like, we, we need this feature, doesn't mean immediately that we have to build this. It's just like, it would be cool to have it. And then it's up to you as a technical leader to say, okay, if you can get me like a test customer and you're okay with a cut down feature set initially, sure, let's try it out. Because as you know, as us as engineers get carried away in building stuff, I mean, salespeople get super stoked as well in saying like, oh my God, I can sell this. This would make my job so much easier. And then you have a really good thing going on because you know, you have a stoked person upfront at a customer that believes that you can build everything and on the other hand as well, you as an engineer knows when you build it, it's actually going to get used because <laughs> you don't want to build stuff that's ultimately not going to get used. Right. That's the one thing as an engineer you don't want to do. You don't want to build something just because there was a miscommunication that ends up not being used whatsoever. By design, though, when you're honest with your customer, you have to give them a timeline. You have to let them know where you are and whether or not you have a ready-made product or if you're actually building an MVP, which means the engineering team actually needs to give you a timeline. And sometimes that can be pretty difficult. What do you do then? It's an issue that we all have to deal with where you know, there's a lot of pushback on all fronts, either on sales and engineering. Uh, but normally, and I speak from experience as well, uh, we overestimate how long it's going to take. 
if you actually sit them down and you take your personal bias out of the picture and just say like, okay, so this is where we have to arrive. This is what we have to build. If I cut this and this and this, which I could see would be a first viable product to put to market, it's only like a month. So it's really also just giving options and not only being transparent to the customer, but also being transparent internally. Because you would be surprised how flexible actually people are because most people are really used to getting disappointed and it's really refreshing if you can just say like, nah, I mean, we can do this. And it's like, I would say be solution oriented, you know, how, how can we arrive at this together and not burning us out along the process and hating each other? Yep. That, that would not be good. All right. So we are at the end of the podcast. And as a final question, I want to ask you, how do you know that you've reached an MVP, that you have a product that is ready to ship? What's the final question you ask yourself? It's, it's really just like, have I done whatever I can do with the resources that I had in that time frame, with what we wanted to achieve? I think that's the question. Because sometimes it's okay to delay uh, a launch, you know, if it's within reason, because you don't want to rush something to market and then regret, you know, capitalizing on, the, on, on that opportunity. But yeah, I, I, I would say like, I, I asked myself, like, am I okay? Take a step back, look at it. And just ask yourself, is this good enough? It's most likely not perfect, but look past all the imperfections that you see that you spent, you know, your, your month, like your month toiling around with it. And he's like, oh my God, all of this is wrong. But look at what actually is right and say like, no, I'm proud of that. That works. That's cool. And does it feel good? And if it does, push it out. And sometimes even if it doesn't feel good, just make sure it doesn't crash. <laughs> make sure all the bugs are, are fixed. I love your approach to building an MVP. All right. I think this is it. Alex, thank you so much for being on this podcast episode. And as a very final question now, where can my listeners find you? Thank you for having me. My Twitter is at ChaosAlex. If you want to get in touch, have any more questions, looking forward to talk to you again. And we certainly will have you on the podcast again. That's it for this episode. If you want to connect with me, the best way to do so is through LinkedIn. If you look for Earl Schaefer, make sure to add a note so I know you're coming from the Word to Startup podcast. And if you're interested in scaling your startup or learning more about the Go Silicon Valley initiative, where Alex is also a mentor, send an email to earl.schaefer at advantageaustria.org. And last but not least, don't forget to subscribe so you get a notification when a new episode is out. I'll see you next time.